Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a message from our sermon series in Isaiah. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, alive in him, my living head, and clothed in his righteousness divine. It's a great joy to hear you, his blood-bought people, sing those gospel promises with such gospel confidence. You open your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah 63 is a prayer. There are a lot of prayers in the Bible. The book of Psalms is an entire book of prayers. If I asked you what is the most famous prayer in the Bible, you'd probably say the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer. Churches recite that down through the centuries. David has a lot of famous prayers. Moses, Abraham have striking prayers. The prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17 is rightly regarded as one of the most beautiful prayers in all of scripture. If I can get you to see Isaiah 63 the way that I've been able to see it, then you'll locate Isaiah 63 and 64 right up there with the greatest prayers in the Bible. Because Isaiah 63 and 64 is one of the most passionate and intense prayers in all of the scripture. And it also sums up the whole story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Not only that, but it sums up your life and mine in one prayer that's directed to God. The summary of this prayer is in the simple three-sentence title of our sermon this morning. God is good, sin is bad, we need help. As we prepare to read Isaiah 63, let's ask for God's help. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secret is hidden. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of thy holy word that we may more perfectly love thee and more worthily magnify thy holy name through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. If you look with me at Isaiah 63, we'll just read verse seven to begin. We covered 63, one to six last week. And then this prayer begins in 63, seven, and it actually goes all the way through 64, verse 12. Isaiah 63, verse seven, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness to the house of Israel. For he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. How does true prayer begin? Our Father, how does true, passionate prayer begin? Well, it kind of does begin with our Father. This prayer begins with, look at it. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord. The question, where does the best prayer begin? The question, where does true prayer begin? Is answered by the word God. True prayer begins with God. The best prayers begin 
in the best place, the best one in all the universe, the most powerful, the most resplendent, the most worthy to accomplish everything one in the whole world, and that is God, our great and good God. When Isaiah says, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, what he means is, in this prayer, I'm going to speak about God. Prayer is speaking to God, but the best prayers speak to God about God. Of course, we pray for our needs and our wants, but we're talking to God, and so we bring that up with who God is and the kind of God that he is. The best prayers begin in the best place, and that is with God. Just to help think about prayer, a couple of weeks ago, I pulled off a of my shelf, an old book by J.I. Packer on prayer. And I didn't read it, but I just flipped through it to see what I highlighted the last time I read it. You ever do that? And I was stopped in my tracks by something that I highlighted. J.I. Packer says this, the vitality of prayer lies largely in the vision of God that prompts it. Drab thoughts of God always make prayer dull. The vitality of prayer the excitement of prayer, the vigor and passion of prayer lies in the vision of the God who prompts it. Dull, drab, boring prayer always begins with vague, cramped thoughts about God. Passionate and wonderful and fiery prayer always begins with large, well-defined, splendid thoughts about God. Think about prayer and don't just think about being on your knees by yourself before you go to bed. Think about praying with other people. And think about a time maybe or a person maybe with whom you have prayed and it was really good to pray with them. You have people that you love praying with. When I think of the men and women in my life who I love praying with, it's because when I hear them pray, they are banging on the gates of heaven like they can feel the gold that they're made out of. And they can almost see God. They're praying to a God who they know loves them and listens to them. I love to pray with women and men like that. There are many in this congregation whom I could name, but I'll Name one who's not here so that I don't embarrass anybody who's here. And I, I was just with him. He's an old friend. We were in seminary together like 31 years ago. My friend John, he's a pastor in Rockford, Illinois. If you know anybody in Rockford, John's church is an amazing church. But I have always loved to pray with my friend John. I remember praying with him 31 years ago and through the years since then when we've gotten together. And whenever I'm praying with John, I... John prays like he believes God is next to him. And he prays like he believes God cares about him and God's gonna answer. Beloved, dry, boring prayers are always traced back to an anemic, paltry vision of God and his compassion and love. But strong prayer is always related to the vision of God's love, God's goodness, God's compassion. Just like he says here, his steadfast love, his goodness, his compassion, the abundance of his steadfast love. We, as we approach this topic of prayer, let me tell you a, 
a sentiment or just like a little proverb about prayer that teachers and preachers often say. I think it's true. I think it's worth repeating because I think it's true. You can tell me if you think it's true or not, but this is the, this is the little truth about prayer. Nothing reveals what you really care about and what you really think God is like, like your prayer life does. There's nothing that reveals what you really care about like your prayer life does. And there's nothing that reveals what you really think about God as your prayer life does. Do you believe that? I think it's pretty true. Could I put it another way? Perhaps a little bit of an uncomfortable way? And could I speak to the kids or the teenagers who are in the room this morning? To the kids, to the teenagers, I would say this. If you're here with your parents, if you would listen to how your parents pray, that will show you what your parents really care about and that will show you what your parents really believe about God. It's stunning when you think about it. It's enough to make you stop and rethink prayer. When Isaiah begins prayer, he begins with God. You see what he says? Steadfast love of the Lord, praises of the Lord, great goodness of the Lord, compassion of the Lord, and then he comes back to the abundance of his steadfast love. So let's talk about goodness, compassion, and his steadfast love. What does it mean when Isaiah says that God is good? The great goodness to the house of Israel. God is good. Meaning that God, is, that God gives good gifts to us. God doesn't take from us what is good for us. God gives to us what is good for us. God's not bad. He's good. God's not unkind and miserly. God is rich and generous in his goodness. How was his great goodness shown to the house of Israel? He called them his own people. He delivered them from Egypt. After they were delivered from Egypt, he didn't leave them on their own, but he gave them his law that they would see and know how to walk and how to love him. Truly, God is good. James 1.17, James 1.17 says, every good and perfect gift comes from God. There is a word goodness in the English language because God is and God is good. If God wasn't and God wasn't good, there'd be no way for us to understand goodness at all. God is so good that it says in Psalm 34 verse 8, it, it's, uh, Psalm 34 verse 8 is an invitation. The psalmist is taking his fingers and he's going like this, come here and check this out. He, he says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is everyone who takes refuge in him. He defies anyone to approach God and not find God being good. Taste and see, the Lord is good. What else does Isaiah say with his vibrant thoughts of God that lead to vitality in prayer? He speaks of God's compassion that he has granted them according to his compassion. This sweet Hebrew word could also be translated mercy. It means that when we are most miserable, God is most merciful. It means that God demonstrates his kindness to us, his compassion to us, 
when we need it most. He takes pity on his people and he cares for them when they don't deserve it. God's compassion is so abundant. God's compassion is so pressed down, overflowing and bubbling over that remember what Lamentations 3 verses 22 and 23 say? It says he has so much mercy and compassion that his mercies never come to an end and they are new every morning. And finally, the word that is repeated twice, steadfast love. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord and then at the end of the verse, so just this one verse is an inclusio and he says, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. This is the wonderful Hebrew word hesed. It means God's perfect love for himself and for all of his creation. And Isaiah is careful to say that the steadfast love of the Lord, the perfect love of the Lord is steadfast. What does steadfast mean? Steadfast means always steady, never tired, never caught on a bad moment where, where he was distracted. His perfect love is steadfast. It does not go up and down, and it's abundant. Why does God's steadfast love have to be so steadfast and abundant? Because God is good, and sin is bad. And we're going to see in this prayer, we're going to see in this chapter, you've already seen, if you've been with us as we've jaunted through the book of Isaiah, you've already seen that our... God's love, our God's love is so steady and steadfast. And one of the reasons it has to be that way is because our sin, our sin is so steady and ongoing and ubiquitous and we're always committing it that if, if our sin could make God not love us anymore, guess what? It would. That's how sinful we are. That's how bad sin is. Notice the if. Don't miss the if. If our sin could make God quit loving us, it would. But praise be to God. His steadfast love is grounded and founded not in your performance, but in his eternal character. His steadfast love, it never fails. It's this, I want to say, I never fail to fail. And God never fails in loving me anyway. God's love is not just unconditional. God's love explodes and refutes all the conditions that we'd ever put on it. Such is his love. Praise God for his steadfast love. See how wonderful this prayer is as we continue to read it. Verse seven through uh, verse nine. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted to us and the great goodness to the house of Israel, for he has granted them according to his compassion, according to his, the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior in all their affliction. He was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. 
in his love and in his pity. He redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. You see how God's compassion is fleshed out in verses eight and nine. How tender are the words of verse nine in all their affliction. He was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them in his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. One way to read this Hebrew phrase, and I think it's the proper way to read it, the angel of the Lord's presence, oftentimes in the Old Testament scripture, is the Old Testament way of speaking of the second member of the Trinity, the Son of God, in his pre-incarnate state. Before he was born as Jesus of Nazareth, he was, so to speak, operative on the earth as in this, as it says here, as the angel of the Lord. If that's the case, and I think it is, then it's striking that the, when we're afflicted, he's afflicted, and the compassion, it reminds me ahead of time of what Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4 are gonna say about the Son of God, our Lord Jesus. That we don't have a God who's so far removed from us that he can't have compassion with our frame and what our lives are like. You ever suffer something? You ever suffer an affliction and you want someone to care for you and they don't? Maybe as a kid, the kids here, maybe you uh, fell down and either you scraped your knee or with me, it was never my knee. I always tried to stop my fall with my hands. I always scraped the palms of my hands. And they, they sting and they hurt and there's rocks in them. And so you run to your mom or you run to your dad. All oh, this hurts. And what if they just said, ah, oh, deal with it. And they just kept doing whatever they were doing, watching sports or, what, or crocheting or whatever dads and moms do. What if, not as a kid, but as an older person here, you have had not a small tragedy in your life in the last number of months. And you've told a friend about it. And they just forgot. They never check in. They don't care. Isaiah 63 verse 9 says that God is not that kind of friend. And he never will be. I can tell you from Isaiah 63, verse 9, from Hebrews 2, from Hebrews 4, I can tell you this, beloved church, if you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, you will never suffer an affliction alone. If you are in Christ, you will never suffer an affliction, but that Christ himself not only knows, but feels the affliction that you are in. Christ feels it. He cares for it. And he brings salvation and comfort. He really is that loving. And so from these wonderful verses, seven and eight and nine, we have to read about how bad sin is in verse 10. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. 
what a U-turn. Just when we think that like God's compassion, God's love, God's pity, God's salvation, God's redemption, everything screeches to a halt. And it says that God is grieved and it says that God turns and it says that he's your enemy and he's actively using his strength to fight against you. Wow. God is good and sin is bad. And so using human language, it says that the good God can turn from being your friend to being your enemy. God doesn't turn. God doesn't change. But the Bible here and everywhere has to use human language to describe a phenomenon that is beyond what we can comprehend. What happens here is when you listen and obey, you walk in the blessing of God. When you refuse to listen and you sinfully rebel, you, move, you have changed and you move yourself out of the blessing of God. The blessing of God is still there, but you're not in it. It's as if you're an enemy of God because you have changed. You have moved. Sin has consequences. The consequences of sin are not changes in the unchanging character of God, but the consequences of sin are changes in your experience of God, your perceived relationship with God, and everything else about your life. That's what this is saying. That's what it means when it speaks about God in this way and it speaks about us in this way, that our sin has this consequence, rebellion. And it causes God to even fight against us and be our enemy. This is a summary. I think I said in the, in the opening lines of the sermon that the prayer in Isaiah 63 is a summary of the entire Old Testament and even the story of the whole Bible. Let me show you that. I'm just ask you to flip back to Psalm 78. If your Bible's open to Isaiah, you actually go to the left, but further back in the Old Testament to get to the book of Psalms. And it asks you to turn to Psalm 78. Psalm 78 describes what, I, what Israel did to turn God against them, so to speak. Psalm 78 begins with this sentiment, God is good. And then Psalm 78 gets to this sentiment, Sin is bad. Let's begin with the first one. God is good. Psalm 78, verse one. Give ear, O my people, to my teachings. Incline your ear to the words of my mouth. I'll open my mouth in a parable. I'll utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should put their hope in God and not forget the works of God and keep his commandments. God is good. And one generation is meant to praise God's goodness to the next. It was last Sunday morning, just exactly a week ago, that the little children's choir, the big children's choir was up here. And they were singing past the promise from one generation to the next. And the adult choir was singing. And the children's choir was singing. And that's what this is saying. 
God's goodness has to be passed along from one generation to the next and all the promises of God. That's how good God is. But look at the same song, the same story as in Isaiah 63. We won't read all of the psalm. You can just pick it up. Basically, where I stopped reading is kind of the end of the, the good part of it and everything else is about how we sinned. You see it in verse eight. Stubborn, rebellious, not faithful. You see it in verse 17. Yet they sinned more against him. You see it in verse 21. The Lord God's full of wrath and his fire is kindled. Pick it up in verse 32. Verse 32 of Psalm 78. In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. When he killed them, then they sought him. They repented and sought God eagerly. They remembered that God was, in their, that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. But they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often. He did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. How often they rebelled against him, how often they grieved him, key word from Isaiah 63, grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again. They provoked the Holy One of Israel. That's the story of Israel. That's the story of Isaiah 63. That's the story of Psalm 78. That's the story of every person in this room. God's been good to you. God has given you many good and precious gifts. And yet you forget God and you use those very gifts to sin against them. Back to Isaiah 63, I want to show you another, just a, a unique gem here in the Old Testament is the grief of the Holy Spirit in Isaiah 63, verse 10. What a unique verse. It says that our sin is so bad, our rebellion is so bad that we bring grief to the Holy Spirit of God. God is good. Sin is bad. How bad is sin? Sin is so bad that, again, this is using phenomen, uh, language for a phenomenon that's, that's too complex for us to understand. But in using human terms, it says that it brings grief to the heart of the Holy Spirit. We understand this from the New Testament, but this is a fascinating glimpse in the Old Testament of the same process. I'm, gonna read, I'm gonna, just going to read you Ephesians 4, verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What a verse. I can, I can think of a mom raising her finger and pointing at her kid and saying, don't do bad, don't sin. But what about raising a finger and saying, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. What a thing to say. Ephesians 4, verse 30 says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And if you'd let me, because my Bible's open to it, just read you uh, the verse before that and the verse after that. In other words, when we have a question about what something in the Bible means, 
it's not the right thing to do to say, hey, Siri, what does this mean? And it's not the right thing necessary to pull some of your favorite books off the shelf or, or look up what your favorite pastor says about it. Maybe there's a place for that further down the road. But the number one way to figure out what something in the Bible means is to look at what comes right before it and what comes right after it because context is load-bearing in the meaning of words. And so what, does it, what is it that causes the Holy Spirit to grieve? Ephesians 4.30 says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.29 let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that may give grace to those who hear. Verse 30, do not grieve. And then verse 31, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you along with all malice. It's very, very clear what grieves the Holy Spirit here in Ephesians 4 is when we speak in ways that are biting and cruel and bitter and angry toward one another. As we think about grieving the Holy Spirit of God, Ephesians 4.30, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Uh, Ephesians 63 verse 10, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Let me tell you one thing about sin and grieving the Holy Spirit. And this one thing I'm gonna tell you is something that if you've been here for a year or more, you have heard me say this before. And I'm not apologizing for saying it again. I'm just pointing out that I know that you know, and now you know that I know that you know that I know that I've said this before. I'm not apologizing for it. The deal is, the deal is, if you are tired of me saying this, the deal is, of course, I will stop repeating it when you finally get it and do it. But until then, I must continue repeating it. The thing that I must continue repeating is simply this. It ain't gonna sound like rocket surgery when I say it. It's a very simple thing. The thing I must continue to say is this. Christians admit when they're wrong. Christians confess their sin. When Christians blow it, Christians are the first ones to say, I blew it, my fault, will you please forgive me? To hear the words, I was wrong, I'm sorry I said that, I should not have said that, I should not have done that. To hear those words in the church should be a very, very, very normal pedestrian experience. It shouldn't be like some galactic event just happened. Because, it, it, I suppose I repeat this so much because it drives me so crazy, not in the sense that I, I just want to sit around and, and not be driven crazy, but in the sense that it, it ruins the work of the ministry almost more than anything else when people who are in the church refuse to admit when they're wrong and they refuse to apologize. Why is that so difficult? Why is that so rare in the church? We would think that in the church, we're the ones that know that Jesus came to save what? Sinners, if I belong to Jesus, that means I'm a sinner, which means that I admit that I sin. It shouldn't be rare for you to say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. That should be very common, right? 
If, if you go to a dog park, if you go to a dog park, what would you expect to see running around the dog park? Let's say dogs, okay? If you stopped the ice cream truck and you walked up to the ice cream truck and he opened the window, what would you expect to see inside the ice cream truck? Piles and piles of frozen goodness called ice cream. If you come to a church, what should you expect to see and hear but sin being confessed and forgiven and sin being confessed and forgiven and sin being confessed and forgiven this week, next week, every other week till Jesus comes back and we sin no more. So when you grieve the spirit of God, when cracks appear in your speech and conduct, don't cover them up and deny them aggressively. Just admit it and confess. This is the healthiest way to live. It's the most Christian way to live. So from this grieving of the spirit when we sin, and it's, it's as if, I, one of the things that he's pushing is that when we sin, it grieves the Holy Spirit. And when we cover it up and don't confess it, it like double grieves him. And so look what happens next in Isaiah 64 or Isaiah 63, pick it up in, uh, we stopped in verse 10, pick it up in verse 11. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit? who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them from the depths like a horse in the desert. They did not stumble like livestock that go down into the valley. The spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. It says in verse 10 that his people sinned but it says in verse 11 that he remembered his covenant of mercy and he forgave them. This is the story of the Old Testament. This is the story of the whole Bible and this is the story of my testimony and yours. It's summarized in Psalm 106. We don't have time to read that Psalm, but if you mark that down, Psalm 106 it says that God was good to Israel and then Israel made a golden calf and God was good to Israel and then Israel sinned and God disciplined them. But the whole story is how God disciplines them and they learn and they respond to his discipline and they come back. This is the story of every person that God loves and that God calls. But if you look at Isaiah 63 verses 11 through 14, I think the high point is the end. Well, there's a almost high point. There's like a, a point where we're on our way to the zenith and we're exalting. And then there's an ultimate exaltation and, and, a, and a real high point. The point, the high point that's on the way to the high point is the last line of verse 12. And the high, high point is the last line of verse 14. The high, the, the, on the way to the high point is this, to make for himself an everlasting name and the ultimate high point is there at the end of verse 14. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Isaiah 63 verses 12 and 14 here in Isaiah's passionate prayer answers the question, answers the question, why does God save us? Why did God save me? Why did God save you? Why did God save Israel? The reason 
is to make for himself a glorious name. The Apostle Paul will answer this question in Ephesians chapter one when he says, why are we saved? Why why is the beloved sent? Why is the blood of Jesus shed? For the praise, for the praise, for the praise of his glorious grace, his glorious grace, his glorious grace. Heaven is not a place where God goes on forever and ever about how great and valuable we are. If that's your vision of heaven, you have a radically distorted view of reality. Heaven is the place where we gladly go to forever say how wonderful and how glorious our Savior God is. In heaven, we're just going to pull those attributes out of verse 7. We're going to recount the steadfast love of the Lord. We're going to recount the goodness of the Lord. We're going to recount the compassion of the Lord. And we're going to recount the abundant, steadfast love of the Lord. It's where we praise him forever and ever. And we'll, the prayer goes on in chapter 64. We'll just read 15 to 19 and hopefully wrap up 63 today. Verse 15 is really the crux of the prayer. It's where, the, it's where, it's where maybe in a, uh, in, a, uh, in a dramatization of this, Isaiah's voice would crack. He'd say, look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Oh God, where's your seal? Where's your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion. Why are they held back from me and from my people? For you are our father. Though Abraham doesn't know us and Israel doesn't acknowledge us, oh Lord, you are our father, our redeemer from of old is your name. Oh Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants and the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while and our adversaries trampled down your sanctuary. We've become like those over whom you never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Isaiah's pleading for God's beat down, mistreated, and seemingly abandoned people in the exile because of their sin. It's like they they don't have the temple, they don't have anything. A quick interpretive explanation of verse 17 where it says, "You, you made us wander from your ways and you hardened our heart. What does that mean? God doesn't, God doesn't cause people to sin. God doesn't cause moral evil. The Bible refutes that everywhere. And we have not this morning in this one chapter from Isaiah stumbled across the one verse in the Bible that says God makes people sin. Like he just winds up robots and makes them do perverse things. It's not, that's not how it works. But we know what the Bible does indicate over and over again, that when people sin, God gives them over to the hardness of their own heart. Psalm 81, maybe you're thinking of Romans 1. Romans 1 is probably just a gloss on Psalm 81. In Psalm 81, God is speaking. Psalm 81, verse 11. My people did not listen to my voice. Israel did not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. 
Psalm 81, verses 11 and 12 is what Paul picks up in Romans 1, 24 and 26 when he says that men and women by their own unrighteousness suppress the truth. They're morally culpable and guilty for their denial of their own conscience and the, and the, and the beauty of creation. And it says, although they knew God, they didn't honor God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their understandings and God gave them over. That's what this is referring to, the hardness of the human heart. And we see here, don't we, that God is good and sin is bad and we need help. And Isaiah is pleading for help in verse 15. Verse 15 has just haunted me this last week. Sometimes I've just gone outside and looked up at the sky and I just quote this verse, look down from heaven and see. Isn't that what prayer is? God, come. God, help. God, none of this is gonna get fixed by these little hands and these little feet. God, come down and help. Prayer begins with God and prayer lifts our needs up to God. And prayer asks God to come and help us. This is the, this is the reality for everyone here who has believed the gospel. You have come to believe that God is good and that Jesus Christ came to seek and save the lost. And you have come to believe that sin, your own sin is bad. And though you've earned the wages of death and separation from God, God in his goodness sent Jesus and now in Jesus, you are saved. And not only is that your, your, your understanding individually if you believe the gospel, but as a church, this is, this is in fact our mission to take that gospel and share it inside the church that we'd edify each other and then outside the church that many, 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 many more disciples would be made and trained up and baptized of Jesus Christ. That's our mission. Because when we cry out, God, look down from heaven and see, look at your holy, beautiful habitation in your zeal and your might, will you send salvation? And the answer is that he has and he does in Jesus Christ. All of our hope is in Jesus Christ and the gospel of his blood, his death, and his resurrection for us. Let's pray. Lord, teach us how to pray. Lord, you have taught us how to pray, even in these moments, by the wonderful example here in Isaiah chapter 63. As you have faithfully taught us how to pray, would you faithfully bring us again and again to this place of prayer? Let our vision of you be lofty and exalted. Let our confession of our sin be quick. Oh, let us be quick to repent. Let us be quick to admit when we're wrong. And let our dependence upon the almighty help of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, be perpetual, moment by moment, day by day. Let us come again and again and again to you, precious Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.